Welcome to The End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. In the past three episodes, we've concentrated on several things related to the Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial that were important precursors. Environment are factors that are crucial in evaluating all of the evidence in the entire story of the Garrison saga. But now that we've done that, it's time to turn the story, and the story is a long and complicated one. But before we do that, let's briefly take a look back at what we've covered so far in the Garrison investigation and describe the main events. Garrison never charged anyone in this case with murdering the president. He had some ideas about who did it, but in truth, he simply did not know who murdered the president. He did not know for sure the names of the men who sat up there in the book depository, or behind the grassy knoll, or inside the Daltex building. No one before or since that moment has definitive answers as to who fired the shots, but most serious researchers agree it certainly was not Lee Harvey Oswald. Some of the investigators on Garrison's team will tell you that it was no mere coincidence that within days of David Ferry's dying in New Orleans, Eladio Del Valle would receive an axe to the head in Miami. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is Justin from Dallas, Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz said today, the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Come on, man, resident. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I'm in the facility. I'm just a passing. I'm just a passing. President. President. Jim Garrison had no one to charge with the murder of President Kennedy, and more importantly, the shooting didn't occur in New Orleans. So murder being a state crime as we know, Garrison had no jurisdiction over the actual murder itself. That was a Dallas event, and Dallas had jurisdiction over that. But what he did have jurisdiction over was the conspiratorial actions that took place in New Orleans to plan the murder, and that fit nicely with the limited evidence he did have. Now, planning a murder still has to be linked to a murder, and in Garrison's investigation, that really never happened. The case for that was weak from the beginning, but the loss of key witnesses like Eladio de Valle, David Ferry, and Guy Bannister may have changed things. 
The charges that were levied against Clay Shaw were conspiracy to commit murder, not the murder charge itself. The conspiracy charge carried a lesser sentence, and of course the concept here is that you don't have to pull the trigger, you just have to be a part of a larger conspiratorial element. Under Louisiana law, and surely for this crime, the maximum sentence would have been delivered. With Clay Shaw in his late 50s at the time of the trial, it was likely to be a life sentence, or close to a life sentence. So with that in mind, let us begin. First, we have already described that Garrison's involvement in the investigation really began almost immediately after the assassination in 1963, when the pistol-whipping incident between Jack Martin and Guy Bannister bubbled to the surface. Martin would then make phone calls afterwards that quickly circulated and made their way to Garrison's investigators and then to Garrison himself. It pointed straight at David Ferry at that moment. Garrison acted swiftly and turned Ferry over to the FBI as a person of interest or witness. The investigation by the FBI was really a joke that led nowhere, partially because the narrative was already being formed around the lone gunman, supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald. You won't be surprised to find that, years later, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that the work done by the original investigative agencies, mostly the FBI, on Ferry at that moment was insufficient. Garrison and his team all but forgot about the assassination investigation after one report was issued until Garrison found himself in a chance discussion on an airplane in late 1966 with then-Senator Russell Long. We chronicled that conversation in last week's episode. The senator convinced Garrison there was more to the story. It was enough to get Garrison focused on swiftly obtaining and reading all 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report. Once he dove into it, the conclusions that Garrison made were simple. The mounds of evidence that were contained in the Warren Commission report were there to compel public confidence and were designed to do one thing, to make the case for a lone gunman. But the very thing that was designed to compel public credibility of the report, the sheer volume of evidence gathered and accumulated, actually helped to make the whole thing fall apart. You see, as a train died, Garrison began to see that there was clear contradictions in the evidence and places where witnesses made clear assertions under oath that were contrary to the lone gunman theory. The more he looked at what was in the documents and the more he discussed with others including his own investigative staff, the more he was convinced that there was really much more potentially to this story than what was being sold to the American public by J. Edgar Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, and the Warren Commission. And because so much of it happened in New Orleans and Oswald was from New Orleans, in his view it fell upon him to figure it out. Obviously Jim Garrison was not the first Warren Commission critic or conspiracy theorist. But the significance of all of this at that moment in our country was that he was the first man in an official law enforcement capacity in the United States to step forward and try to further the investigation of the president's murder. This important point should not be lost when evaluating Garrison's legacy and his place in history. There were things that his office had previously not been involved with, but they were significant to the case. The most important of these items were the events surrounding Dean Andrews. Andrews was a local attorney in New Orleans who had previously been approached by Oswald to represent him on some minor legal matters, including his undesirable discharge from the military and other immigration matters related to Lee's wife, Marina. Andrews was actually in the hospital, sick on the day of the assassination, and over that assassination weekend, there he lay in a hospital bed and received a call from an individual requesting that Andrews go to Dallas and represent Oswald. 
Keep in mind, by this time, Oswald had been apprehended for the murders of Officer J.D. Tippett and President Kennedy. Andrews was not able to go to Dallas because of his medical circumstance, but he called another lawyer and a friend of his, Sam Monk Zeldin. Zeldin was there in town, and the two of them would discuss the possibility of this gentleman substituting for Andrews. Ultimately, no one had to go to Dallas and defend Oswald, because by that Sunday morning, Oswald had been murdered by Jack Ruby. But Dean Andrews at that moment knew the significance of this request, and so Andrews reported the incident to the FBI. In a November 29th FBI report, a report dated one week after the assassination, Dean Andrews was said to have identified the man that had called him to represent Oswald. That man, Andrews said, was Clay Bertrand. Subsequent to his conversation with the FBI, Andrews would be called to testify before the Warren Commission. He told the story under oath that he had been called by Clay Bertrand to represent Oswald. All of those discussions became written records and later included in the Warren Commission report. By the time the Warren Commission had gotten around to taking his testimony, there were some oddities that began to creep into the versions of the story. More on that later. In Andrew's case, like so many of the documented leads memorialized in the Warren report, they just sat there dangling in the wind with no real investigative follow-up taken during the testimony. Eventually, after Garrison got his hands on a full set of the Warren Report documents and read these particular documents on Andrew's testimony, he initiated a search for this mystery man, Clay Bertrand. Who was this man? Who would have such a vested interest in the defense of Lee Harvey Oswald that he would call Dean Andrews to represent Oswald? And to make it even more bizarre, this jive-talking New Orleans attorney was not professionally fit to represent anyone in a murder case or cases, let alone this one. Garrison would immediately wonder where this gentleman, Clay Bertrand, would lead them. Was he part of a larger conspiracy? Easy for someone to conjecture that someone making such a request of Andrews had a vested interest in Oswald relating to something. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Garrison formally launched his investigation in late 1966, and one of the first things he did was try to locate this character, Clay Bertrand. Garrison knew Dean Andrews fairly well. The legal community was small enough in New Orleans and Jim Garrison had a personal relationship with Andrews going way back, as Andrews actually was an assistant DA. Garrison would meet with Dean Andrews in a local restaurant. Andrews wouldn't give Garrison what he wanted and the meeting got very heated. This is how Oliver Stone would portray that meeting in the movie JFK. Pipe the bimbo in red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's cute, all right, but not half as cute as you, Dino. Thank you. You should try a legitimate line of business. Why are you dancing on my head for, my man? We've been sick of molasses pie since law school. Keep me, Dean. I read your testimony to the Warren Commission. There you go again. Grain of salt. Tell them the day after the assassination, you're called on the phone by this Clay Bertrand and asked to fly to Dallas and be Lee Oswald's lawyer. Right. That's pretty important, Dean. You also told the FBI that when you met him, he's six foot two. Then you tell the commission he's five foot eight. Now, how the hell does a man shrink like that, Dean? They put the heat on my man, just like you're doing. I gave him anything that popped in my cabeza. Truth is, I never met the dude. I don't know what the cat looks like, and furthermore, I don't know where he's at. All I know is sometimes he sends me some cases. So one day he's on the phone talking to me about going to Dallas repping Oswald. Did you ever speak to Oswald in Dallas? Hell no. Like I told that Bertrand cat right off. Cash you piece? This ain't my scene, man. I deal in Munich court. I'm a hacker nigga. Now the hell's your name getting the Warren Commission, Dean? 
like I told to the Washington boys. Bertrand called that summer and asked me to help the kid upgrade his Marine discharge. But no conspiracy, Jim. If there were, why the hell didn't Bobby Kennedy prosecute it as Attorney General? He was his brother, for Christ's sake. How the fuck all those people can keep a secret like that, I don't know. It was Oswald. It was a fruitcake. You know, a communication problem, Dean. I know you know who Claire Bertrand is, all right? Now stop eating that damn crab meat a minute and listen. I'm aware of our friendship. But I want you to know, I'm going to call you in front of the grand jury. You lie to the grand jury. You've been lying to me. I'm going to charge you with perjury. I, I took nine judges on right here in New Orleans, Dino. I beat them all. So am I communicating with you? Is this off the record, Daddy-O? Good. In that case, let me sum it up for you real quick. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyard Dino. I mean, like, permanent. I mean, like a bullet in my head, you dig? Your mouth's fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's still breathing. You want to line up with a dead man? My lips, Dino. Either you dance into the grand jury with the real identity of Claire Bertrand, or your fat behind's going to the slammer. Now, you dig me? You're as crazy as your mama. Goes to show it's in the jeans. You have any idea what you're getting yourself into, Daddy-O? The government's going to jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir. Garrison's team began working very quietly to search the French Quarter for this man, Clay Bertrand. It wasn't long before they were finding a great deal of individuals who knew that the name Clay Bertrand was a pseudonym, an alias for a famous New Orleans resident, Clay Shaw. Shaw was head of the International Trademark. He was now retired and was a leading member of the community, and he had helped foster a movement to restore and preserve many of the historic houses and structures within the French Quarter in New Orleans. He was a man of some stature in New Orleans and his community. Their trouble in the DA's office was trying to get someone who would actually stand up and testify to this fact. You see, Shaw was a homosexual, and we're talking about an era where one's sexual preference was not advertised, and especially if you were a homosexual. New Orleans was a place where you could get lost in the quarter at night and still live your other life undisturbed in the daytime. An alias was an easy way to make it just a little harder for people to identify you and connect you with who you were in the daytime. From a secret start of the formal investigation, which began around December 1966 up through February 1967, a period of about three months, Garrison assembled a close-knit team from his staff and they began to fan out. They would go to Dallas, they would go to faraway places such as New York, and they would track down witnesses and follow up on leads. As their investigation was ongoing, more intelligence on the ground was piling up and linking things. And yet, so were the rumblings in New Orleans that something was afoot. The investigative activity had been substantial enough that rumors of it had caught the attention of two local reporters working for the State Times, Rosemary James and Jack Dempsey. Jim Garrison would assign Lou Ivon, one of his team's principal investigators, to develop a relationship with David Ferry in the hopes that Ferry could become a witness capable of telling the entire story or at least linking it all together. Garrison would read on in the Warren Commission documents and get to the references to 544 Camp Street, an address that was identified in the Warren Report as having been stamped on Oswald's Fair Play for Cuba pamphlets. Garrison himself would wander on down to that address and gaze over the nearby buildings. He realized that 544 Camp Street was also known as 531 Lafayette Street, the same building with a separate entrance. 
It was actually the building where Guy Bannister's office was located, and it was right in the heart of the part of the city where various elements of the intelligence community had their offices. The CIA, the Offices for Naval Intelligence, among others. This wasn't 63? Sure, Guy Bannister, ex-FBI man, died a couple years ago. Bannister headed the Chicago office. When he retired, he became a private eye here. I used to have lunch with him. John Birch Society, Minute Man. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Right to the right of Attila the Hunt. He used to recruit college students, infiltrate radical organizations on campus. Headed the Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean. All out of this office. Come around here, I want to show you something. See that? Now take a look here. 544 Camp Street. 531 Lafayette Street. Same building, right? but with different addresses and different entrances, both going to the same place, to the office upstairs. Guess who used this address? The Harvey Oswald. Now, how do we know he was here? Because this office address was stamped on the pro-Castro leaflets he was handing out in the summer of 63 down on Canal Street. Now, these are the same leaflets they found in his garage in Dallas. What the hell is this doing on this piece of paper? After the arrest, 544 Camp Street never appeared on the pamphlets again. Yes. He was arrested that day for fighting with some anti-Castro Cubans. But actually, he had contacted them a few days earlier as an ex-Marine trying to join their anti-Castro crusade. When they heard he was now pro-Castro, well, they paid him a visit. Where is this shit? You lie to me, you hypocrite! Liar, you son of a bitch! There was no real fight, and the arresting lieutenant later said he felt it was a staged incident. In jail, Oswald has a private session with Special Agent John Quigley of the FBI. Oswald is released, and Quigley destroys his notes from the interview. The arrest gets him a lot of publicity, and as a result... Oswald appears on a local TV debate. But you, uh, you are a communist, are you not? Uh, no, Mr. Bringier. Uh, I am not a, a, a communist. I'm Marxist-Leninist. You are not a communist, but you are a Marxist-Leninist? What is the difference? And here's another one for you. What would you say if I told you the Oswald was trained in the Russian language when he was a Marine? i say he's probably getting intelligence training. Well, if you were in the Marines, who would be running that training? Office of Naval Intelligence. Take a look across the street. Post office. Upstairs in 1963, that was the Office of Naval Intelligence. Just by coincidence, Bannister, before he was FBI, was O&I. Now, what's that little saying they have? Once O&I, always O&I. Well, he likes working near his old pals. Bill, Lou, we are standing in the heart of the United States government's intelligence community in New Orleans. That's the FBI there. Right? That's the CIA. That's the Secret Service. That's the ONI. And doesn't this seem to you a rather strange place for a communist to spend his spare time? These and other facts begin to tie together in Garrison's mind the entire story. Garrison and his investigative team would then re-engage in talks with Jack Martin. As you recall, the man who originated so much of the original investigation after being pistol whipped by Bannister. After hearing the rumblings that an investigation might have commenced, reporters Rosemary James and Jack Dempsey approached Garrison for an interview. Garrison would deny that request, and that led James and Dempsey to take a different approach. 
they began to investigate expenditures contained in travel vouchers submitted to the city by the DA's office in order to see if there were any indications that might lead them to the answer about these alleged investigative activities. And sure enough, what they came across among $8,000 of expenditures was quite revealing. Expenditures supporting trips and other activities that clearly gave them the answers to what they were looking for. Garrison was conducting an investigation, and it sure did look like that investigation related to the murder of John F. Kennedy. It was not long after that that they would have enough to break the story. They published their findings on February 17, 1967. Garrison would say that the timing of that news break was unfortunate. His investigator, Lou Ivon, who had been developing a relationship with David Ferry, received a phone call from Ferry the moment that the investigation hit the papers. Ferry would tell Ivon, quote, You know what this means. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man now. End quote. Guess, you know, I just don't know who to trust anymore, you know? I suppose I could use a pot of hot coffee and a few packs of Luckies, huh? So you got anything new on the investigation? Who are you scared of, Dave? Me? Everybody. Agency, mob, Cubans. That's it. Follow the Cubans. Check them out. Here in Miami, Dallas. Check out a guy named Eladio Del Valle. He used to be my paymaster when I flew missions into Cuba. Somewhere in Miami, you're on the right track. Hey, hey, don't be writing this down. I ain't cooperating here with no one. What's going on here? There's a death warrant for me. Don't you get it? Damn. Wait a minute. You ain't, you ain't bugged, are you? You ain't some bitch, Lou. Are you? Dave, I you always play square. No bugs. I, I love to have you go on the record, but I'm, I'm in no hurry. Whenever you slip since that shit article come out. Why'd you guys have to go and get me involved with this? Did we get you involved or did Clay Shaw, Dave? Faggot. He got me by the balls. What do you mean? You know, photographs, compromising stuff. He used them, too. Agency place for keeps. I knew Oswald. He was in my Civil Air Patrol unit. I taught him everything. He's a wannabe, you know? Nobody really liked him because they thought it was a snitch. But I treated him good. He talked about his kid, you know, really wanted her to grow up with a chance, but... What's this? What's going on here? And nobody coming in. Ferry was deteriorating mentally and emotionally, and the DA's office knew it. But they were in some level of a dilemma as to whether or not they should charge Ferry immediately and complicate the extraction of more facts from him, or simply continue to work with him at that moment as a witness. For them, he was a key participant, and this decision was critical. Almost at the moment that Garrison's team was debating what to do with Ferry during a team meeting, they would receive a phone call and be informed of David Ferry's death. It took the whole team for a pause. They moved quickly to get to his apartment and secure evidence and determine what happened. The coroner's report listed the cause of death as a brain aneurysm. But the strange thing was Ferry left two apparent suicide notes, typed and keenly placed. Garrison felt like the coroner did not undertake certain essential testing to determine the exact cause of death. Was it the aneurysm, or was it a suicide implied by the notes Ferry left in his apartment? Or was he murdered? Ferry had just expressed concern over his own safety, and Garrison had his doubts that his demise was the result of natural causes. There was no doubt that this was a moment of inflection for Garrison, in terms of substantial evidence, because he had little. And as for principles to charge, well, he had little of that as well. Oswald was now dead, 
Bannister was now dead, and Ferry was now dead. So members of Garrison's close-knit investigative team felt that this was the exact moment at which he should have made the decision to shut things down. He had the perfect reason to shut down the investigation. Why didn't he? Well, what happened next would change the trajectory of the investigation. You see, Garrison did exactly the opposite of shutting down the investigation. He hit the gas. He would hit that gas and go full throttle after he received the next witness tip. You see, Ferry was relatively well-known locally in some circles, and Ferry's death was well-publicized in New Orleans. So a young man named Perry Russo saw the news about Ferry's death, and as a result, almost immediately reached out to Garrison's office, indicating that he knew Ferry and that he had some things to share. This would lead Garrison to send one of his investigators to interview Perry Russo. Russo provided information about a conspiracy and identification of Clay Shaw as being part of it, and identifying Clay Shaw as Clay Bertrand. Well, eventually they would have a story in hand from Russo that was the core of the conspiracy charge. A story that stated that Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald had all been at a party one night where they laid out the plans for a triangulation crossfire event to be carried out with high-powered rifles and in which there would be a getaway out of the country. Russo said Ferry was to be the pilot because he had experience to do that. Here's an interview from March 15, 1967, with the man who turned out to be Jim Garrison's star witness, Perry Raymond Russo. In late September or during October, a month right prior to the Kennedy assassination in November, uh, Dave Perry had occasion to come over the house on several instances, and I went to his place and just passing, uh, and he made specific references that, in talking about Kennedy, he said, we will get him, and it won't be very long. Now, the last time I can remember him saying that was uh, sometime in October. But he was obsessed with that idea. Uh, why have you never said anything about uh, this before? It didn't, didn't it strike you that it might have some well, connection? <clears throat> when the assassination, of course, caught me by surprise and caught everyone else, I would guess. When it finally was over and a Warren report, a Warren commission was set up and it uh, tended to go and examine all of the details and it made claims that it was going to do everything <clears throat> extensively. Then I left it to the professionals, and they were supposed to come out with a verdict. Then they came out with a verdict that Hoswald was the only man, so I forgot it. Then Garrison began his probe and subsequently got in the newspapers in New Orleans and then later on on television everywhere. And in that probe, he said that there was a conspiracy and he could prove it. It still didn't ring a bell anywhere along the line. I just It was far from me that I would have any, you know, ever have met a person. I would have been a conspirator to the president of the United States. Thereafter, when Jay Ferry died, uh, the name, I still doubted if it was the same guy. This is just another Dave Ferry. But when I saw his picture in the paper, then I knew it was the same man, and I had just as, just as well uh, say something to someone. And I wrote the district attorney the next day, and he should have gotten it Friday. And I saw the pictures this week. You haven't uh, talked with any federal agents or anybody from the Warren Commission about it? No, no one's contacted me. Actually, the first time I made a remark about this was today, and to anyone in public. A key witness in Oliver Stone's movie JFK is Willie O'Keefe, portrayed by Kevin Bacon. It is O'Keefe whose testimony links Clay Shaw to Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, and a JFK assassination conspiracy. Of course, as Oliver Stone acknowledges, O'Keefe is a fictional character. He's a composite of four separate witnesses. According to Stone, Willie O'Keefe is a composite character drawn from four of Garrison's witnesses, Perry Russo, David Logan, Raymond Brochiers, and William Morse. 
Three of them met Shaw through Ferry. The fourth, Morse, was introduced to Shaw, who called himself Clay Bertrand by a mutual friend. Like O'Keefe, Logan and Brochiers met Shaw slash Bertrand at the French Quarter bars. Brochiers, who had intelligence connections, reported seeing Shaw and Ferry together on several occasions, including a time when Shaw handed Ferry an envelope filled with cash. Logan and Morris became intimate with Shaw, visiting Shaw's restored carriage house on Dauphine Street. Russo's story that he met Shaw at a party at Ferry's at which the assassination was discussed made him one of Garrison's key witnesses. Here's a scene from the movie JFK when Jim Garrison is interviewing the character who is Willie O'Keefe that represents Perry Russo and three other men. Oh, thank you, Mr. O'Keefe, for this time. Yeah, I ain't got nothing but time, Mr. Garrison. Minutes, hours, days, years of them. Time just stands still here like a snake, sun itself on the road. Clay Bertrand, Willie. Yeah, Clay. I met him uh, sometime in uh, June of 62. The Masquerade Bar. Dave Ferry took me there for the express reason to meet him. Sexual purposes. Well, yeah. Did he pay you for this? Twenty dollars each time. Hell, ain't no secret. That's why I'm in here for. Anything else unusual about him? Be able to describe in a court of law? I remember he had some kind of thing wrong with his leg. Limp. You know, don't get me wrong. He's not one of those limp wrists. He's a butch John. I mean, you meet him on the street, you never snap. You can play poker with him, go fishing with him, man. You never snap in a million years. One night we was over at Dave Ferry's place having a party. That was uh, sometime late in the summer of 63. There was about uh, nine or ten people there. Cuban. You know, friends of Dave's been doing some stuff in the bush with him. Mess, man. Dave's mind is a mess. There's all these mice cages all over because he's working on this cure for cancer. Dave's smart, though. He's sharp. He speaks five languages. He knows uh, philosophy, medicine, military history, politics. He said he wanted to be a priest, but uh, they defracked him because he was queer. And that's where you met Oswald for the first time. Yeah, strange guy. Garrison's team would also come across a body of evidence that placed David Ferry, Lee Oswald, and Clay Shaw together in Clinton, Louisiana in the fall of 1963, as Oswald sought a job at the mental hospital there. The day that Oswald was at the mental hospital supposedly trying to get a job, the hospital was having a voter registration drive, and Oswald ended up in the line and was seen there with Clay Shaw by numerous witnesses. Later, the House Select Committee on Assassinations would review this encounter in Clinton and said that it was legit, and they deemed the witnesses credible. This Clinton, Louisiana saga did further the identified links between Oswald Ferry and Shaw. However, it should be noted that what exactly they were doing together in Clinton on that trip, or perhaps more importantly, why they were doing it, has never been identified. Within less than a week of Ferry's death, Garrison, on March 1st, 1967, would arrest Clay Shaw and charge him with conspiracy to murder President John F. Kennedy. On March 1st, 1967, the first arrest has been made in the investigation of the New Orleans District Attorney's Office into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Arrested this evening in the District Attorney's Office was Clay Shaw, age 54, of 1313 Dauphine Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Mr. Shaw will be charged with participation 
in a conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy. It should be pointed out, however, that the nature of this case is not conducive to an immediate succession of arrests at this time. However, other arrests will be made at a later date. This is District Attorney Jim Garrison. The situation speaks for itself. We made an arrest. There will be more arrests. And uh, I have no doubts whatsoever about the case. I said this some time ago, and I meant it. And uh, when I say there will be other arrests, I mean that, and they will stand up.